Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Fuzzy thinking. Why liberal arts are vital to a digital future. I think the myth that we need to bust that it's okay to be a fuzzy, it's okay to know human skills, being able to ask questions of data, not just have the tech do everything. So a messy question in this case would be asking something like, what would happen if our ears were square? Because it's not something that's Googleable. How, How do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Big data is all the rage in business, but what if algorithms and technology don't have all the answers? Yeah, young people hear a constant drumbeat of STEM, 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 uh, going into fields of science and tech. But a lot of the most successful people today actually have backgrounds in things like philosophy and literature. With us today is Scott Hartley, who argues that people with liberal arts educations are becoming more valuable than ever in the digital economy. Scott is a venture capitalist who has worked at Google and Facebook. He's the author of The Fuzzy and the Techie, one of my favoritely named books of the year, Why the Liberal Arts will rule the digital world. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much for having me. So you say that when you were an undergraduate at Stanford, the students kind of organized themselves into the techies, you know, the, the computer science engineers, and the fuzzies, the liberal arts people. How did that work out on campus? Yeah, so these, these terms, the fuzzy and the techie, actually date back to the 1960s, 1970s on campus. People studying, you know, computer science and engineering or people studying sort of arts, humanities and social sciences. What was your degree? Were you a fuzzy or a techie? So I'm unabashedly a fuzzy. And part of the impetus for writing the book was looking at my own personal narrative and personal story, having studied political theory and political science as an undergrad and then having studied international affairs as a grad student uh, and, and sort of then ending up in tech, you know, and all my friends kind of posed this question of, you didn't study computer science or electrical engineering. Yeah, what are you doing What are you doing working at Google? But but you grew up in Palo Alto, so it's kind of, uh, it kind of comes with the territory. It was was in the water. And I I will admit that, you know, many many a kid for trick-or-treating, you know, goes around in khaki pants as a venture capitalist. (laughs) But I think that 
I wanted to myth bust this idea that tech was this monolith of, of only techies and, you know, sort of myth bust this notion that if you study something that, that, you know, you maybe didn't have the passion or didn't have the foresight to, to jump into computer science when you were 12 years old, it's still completely fine. And there are so many different roles in these companies that are, uh, that are requiring these skills from various methodologies. You know, the way that we think about autonomous vehicles, the way that we think about art- artificial intelligence, the way that we build algorithms or machine learning technologies. You know, there are ethicists in the room. There are psychologists in the room. Yeah. So the fuzzies and the techies at Stanford, Stanford has graduated many remarkably successful people. And Silicon Valley grew up very close to Stanford. So... What have you found? Well, I think, you know, the observation that I had um, sitting on, on Sand Hill Road as a venture capitalist was, you know, looking sort of behind the, the veil of a lot of these companies was that the code had somewhat been commoditized. And I think if you go back to the 80s or 90s, it probably was the case that a lot more technology companies were driven by techies, driven by people laying the infrastructure down for for the internet, for the web. Um, you know, today you have a lot of infrastructure companies still being built by by techies, but you also have a lot of application layer companies being built by people applying technology meaningfully to a walk of life or a problem or a domain that they understand. So I think that the secret sauce or the the people kind of bringing the oomph to the companies are the people being able to passionately understand and describe a problem, build a team around them, have the charisma, have the experience to sort of uh, apply the technology meaningfully. So the ground is shifting. I would say the tectonic plates, you know, tech being the, the operative word there, <laughs> have sort of shifted in the direction of, of giving the opportunity to a lot more uh, fuzzies. And, uh, you know, Mark Andreessen, who's a fabled kind of entrepreneur and venture capitalist uh, techie, um, you know, who founded Netscape and then has gone on to build a venture capital firm, you know, he's made the argument that software is eating the world. And I would flip that to say that I think software is feeding the world. It's giving opportunity to so many different types of people to be able to apply technology to their problems. And we even see that, you know, one of the great icons in the history of American technology, Steve Jobs, he talked about Mm -hmm. technology married to the humanities. And he had a background in the humanities. I mean, he studied calligraphy, for God's sake. Yeah, so he's, you know, he's a classic example, I think, of somebody who partnered with a techie in Waz to be able to take, uh, you know, this sort of brilliant vision that he had, which was he thought about WYSIWYG interface, you know, being able to see and, and interact with, you know, with, with technology in a completely new way. W- WYSIWYG um, interface. That's such a great phrase. Yeah, what you see is what you get. It's, okay. a, it's a great acronym. We tend to think, people who aren't coders tend to think that you can't do anything in the computer world without really great coding mm-hmm. skills. You know, you used to have to know HTML to build a website. Now you can go to one of these companies mm-hmm. where they'll just, you, you know, you can just buy these templates and build your website and make it look really great. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know the underlying code. And that same process is happening in lots of other fields as well, correct? So, so there's a great description of uh, taking uh, development from full stack engineering, meaning sort of knowing the back end, knowing the front end, knowing all these different constituent parts and the languages that make up those parts, being a full stack developer. Today, it's really more about being a full stack integrator and being able to take uh, these larger chunks, these building blocks. That you can buy on the can, market in some way, correct? You can sort of, uh, whether it's uh, downloading chunks of code from, from GitHub or using a Squarespace, for example, which is a plug-and-play ability to, to build a beautiful website without knowing HTML or CSS or JavaScript, some of the constituent languages behind websites. 
Um, but similarly with, with mobile apps, you can now use a design program that's a Dutch-based company called Sketch, which looks a lot like Photoshop. And it allows you to build, uh, dis- design a beautiful user interface and then be able to export that to a place where you can create a clickable prototype. So in a matter of hours rather than a matter of days or weeks or months, you can basically build a clickable prototype that you could then show to an investor, you could show to an engineer to sort of convey the vision of what you want to build. A recent U.S. Labor Department report predicts as many as 65% of kids in school today will work in jobs that have not yet been created. I love that. I mean, that's that gives us hope, doesn't it? That that jobs are not all going to be replaced by robots and that there are things that we don't even imagine that are coming down the pike. So I think if you listen to a few of the great commencement speeches that have been given in 2017, so from Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, who delivered a commencement address at Indiana University. Anne-Marie Slaughter of the New America Foundation. Exactly. So CEO of New America Foundation, former dean of Princeton, um, and she delivered a a great uh, commencement address where she talked about how we've put uh, primacy around reason and sort of put all of our emphasis on putting reason before emotion and how we need to sort of bring back these two sides. So whether it's the law where you subjugate passion to reason, you know, thinking about how do we bake, uh, how do we bring emotion and passion and in some of these softer elements back into the rigorous curriculums that we have? So sort of talking about this sort of faux opposition similar to fuzzy and tacky. Um, Similarly, Fareed Zakaria gave a commencement address um, at Bucknell where he again talked about sort of this faux opposition between the, you know, sort of going back to Charles Percy Snow, C.P. Snow and sort of this two cultures debate between the sciences and the humanities. I think, you know, we've, we've moved to a world where there's so much uh, focus on, on big data. There's so much focus on the, 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 the quote-unquote hard or rigorous uh, scientific elements of, you know, if we, if we have enough data, if we have enough information, we can manufacture knowledge, and knowledge will come ipso facto, you know, on its own. And really, we forget the fact that we always require smart questioners. You mentioned C.P. Snow and this famous speech or talk he gave back in the 1950s, the two cultures. Just tell us a little bit about what he was saying then. So in 1959, uh, Charles Percy Snow, C.P. Snow, delivered the Reith Lecture at Cambridge University, where he talked about the sort of growing chasm between the sciences and the humanities. And this was dubbed the Two Cultures Lecture. And I think similarly today, when we look at this sort of uh, promulgation of STEM as the pathway to relevance and liberal arts as the pathway to irrelevance in the future, we we have a similar dichotomy growing. And it's really this false opposition that C.P. Snow pointed to, you know, 60 plus years ago that we're experiencing again today. And then we have the fortune of having, I think, people like Fareed Zakaria, even people like Tim Cook, who was uh, the CEO of Apple, Apple, uh, giving the commencement address at MIT. He uh, effectively argued for back to Steve Jobs' legacy, you know, merging technology with the liberal arts, merging technology with the humanities, as this application of technology is the very reason why we build these things. But what are they specifically in a business environment? What kind of skills are we talking about? So let's take a look at automation, for example. There's, there's headlines on a daily basis about in this 140-character Twitter world that we live in, we read headlines about robots taking over the world, about artificial intelligence, about automation of all types of jobs. Realistically, when we look at our jobs, they're made up of constituent tasks. And McKinsey Global Institute had a great study that came out this 
past uh, January, where they they looked at the underlying tasks within jobs. And uh, McKinsey came up with 5% of jobs had 100% of tasks that were potentially automatable. So Only this 5%. Is, this is very different than the 2014 yeah. Oxford study that said that 47% of U.S. jobs were at high risk of machine automation. On, on a recent podcast we did, we had Peter Capelli of, of the Wharton School talking about this very fact and yeah. saying that, that robots are not about to take your job, that artificial intelligence is not necessarily a job killer. What's really interesting is if you look at, uh, let's look at the metaphor of autonomous vehicles. We've had a spectrum of growing um, autonomous, the, the autonomous nature of vehicles has been you know, improving along a spectrum for a long time. So if you go back to manual to automatic transmissions, to park assist, to anti-lock brakes, you know, we're starting to have driver assist and lane guidance with LIDAR sensors. Right. Stability and control. Stability control. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to continue to see this, uh, this automation, you know, move in the direction of fully autonomous vehicles. But it's not an all or nothing sort of zero to one, in, in Peter Thiel speak, change. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff you just mentioned, people don't think of it as being autonomous. They don't, they don't think of an automatic transmission as something that, they don't think of it as automation, really. They forget that they used to have to. Of course, I'm a stick shift guy, but they forget that they had they had they had to used to have to make decisions about when to shift. Now the car makes that decision for you. They don't know that the computer is actually taking over mm-hmm. for their bad in- driver inputs. And you're saying the same kind of process is happening in other areas. We're getting assisted by the technology without necessarily seeing it as a form of automation. So I think increasingly we'll start seeing these nudges baked into our, our desktop world, our, our, you know, our, our, our work environments. So, for example, if you're about to send that email out, you know, if there is machine learning that says, based on response rates of people that you're emailing, we recommend that you wait 30 minutes until after lunch, or we recommend for this social media post that you do it between these hours and these hours because we've seen the volume of traffic on the site, and this is our recommendation. It, or from the fact that you just left the bar, <laughs> maybe this isn't the moment to send that, that pissed-off email to your boss. Exactly. <laughs> Um, we're already working with machines in these very uh, symbiotic ways, and I think we'll continue to see that sort of merging of the of the two sides. Scott, you say that people think AI, artificial intelligence, will wipe out a ton of jobs, but y- you believe that it's going to create jobs. So give us a sense of that. So when you look at what, again, going back to these manual, manual and cognitive tasks that are highly routine, if we take those out of the equation, let's, let's assume this sort of These 5% pessimistic, of jobs yeah. in the McKinsey study. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and additional to that, uh, for 60% of jobs, they said that 30% of tasks were things that could be automated over time. So this gets much more to an intelligence augmentation world than an artificial intelligence world. So thinking about how are machines going to help us do our jobs better? more effectively. David Deming, who is an economist at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, talks about the soft skills as this dark matter in the universe. You know, so we know that it's there, but we can't quite quantify it. We can't quite put our finger on it. So in this world of high complexity where we're trading more tasks, soft skills are the very thing that reduce the transaction costs that enable highly productive workforces. Is too much value being placed on big data, big data, so when, with regard to big data, you know, we've, we've had this argument going back to Plato and Sir Francis Bacon about more information will 
on its own lead to more knowledge. And we forget this, you know, great quote by Voltaire, which is, you know, judge a person by their questions, not by their answers. And how many of us have sat in front of the blank Google canvas and had the, the world's information at our fingertips yet wondered what question to ask it? And I think the same is true of big data. You know, more and more we think that because sensors are becoming cheaper, because they're baked into our fabric, they're baked into our homes, our cities, our cars, we suddenly will have so much information that we'll just know more. And I think we forget that behind big data are humans asking big questions. So there's a great example in the book uh, by a guy named Sham Senkar, who's the director at Palantir Technologies. And Palantir is a, a big data company where everyone is a quote unquote forward deployed engineer, even though that's often uh, speak for sales. Uh, <laughs> you know, so this that's is a, a wonderful This phrase. is the, uh, the primacy of the techie. And I think the myth that we need to bust that it's okay to be a fuzzy, it's okay to know human skills, to, to have, you know, these sort of softer aspects of, of being able to ask questions of data, not just have the tech do everything. But where does something like philosophy fit into this? Well, it's really interesting you bring up philosophy because so many product managers and, and, and people at the helms of these great companies in Silicon Valley and when I say Silicon Valley, I mean technology writ large. I don't mean the geographic mm -hmm. place of, of Silicon Valley because this phenomenon is happening everywhere. But if you look at uh, whether it's Peter Thiel, who was a philosophy major and then studied law, who founded PayPal and Palantir, whether it's Reid Hoffman, who did a graduate degree in philosophy and founded LinkedIn, or it's Stuart Butterfield, who studied philosophy undergrad and grad school and built uh, the corporate communications platform called Slack in the process of product development is something where you don't know exactly where you're going, but you've got to be open to possibilities. You've got to be able to ask these hard questions, you know, see something from another side, be empathetic to the argument and sort of iterate your way forward. I, I looked it up actually, cause I happen to have been a philosophy major. Um, <laughs> uh, but according to, um, to one statistic, I saw less than half of 1% of all college graduates in the U S are philosophy majors, undergrads. And yet they're wildly overrepresented in this this group of tech entrepreneurs. You know, it's it's interesting that I th I think when you kind of take a step back and, and remain open to the possibility that there are various different walks of life in, in Silicon Valley and it's not a monolith of techies, it's not a monolith of, of dropout programmers and coders, um, that there are people like Susan Wojcicki who studied history and literature running YouTube. There are people like Carly Fiorina who ran HP who studied medieval history. Yeah, there are all these different backgrounds and types of people in the Valley um, you, you do see that there is an overrepresentation in some ways of, of majors like philosophy. My, my son is a painter. Um, in fact, you're sitting right in front of one of his paintings. He went to RISD. Um, and to me... The that, Rhode Island School of Design. Exactly, the Rhode Island School of Design. And to me, that school really emphasizes a marriage of fuzzy and techie. Do you agree? So RISD is a great example of, uh, you know, going back to examples in Silicon Valley, the founders of Airbnb were graduates of RISD. So you ask, you know, why, what was it about that process? What was it about RISD maybe that gave Joe Gebbia and, and, and Brian Chesky the ability to create 
Airbnb. And I think it was an appreciation of professional photography. That was something that actually led to the viral growth of Airbnb when they realized that having beautiful light, beautiful phot- photography in this space um, was something that led to, you know, greater engagement with the platform, greater, you know, sales. And, and, and that really helped Airbnb grow. And similarly, if you look behind the, the, the curtain of Facebook, you know, what led Facebook to be successful? It was photo tagging. It was a sociological insight of how people wanted to interact with the product. It was user experience research that led to that innovation. Um, so really, you know, behind the, the veil of Mark Zuckerberg being the Uber coder, we forget that he was a liberal arts graduate of Exeter, and then he was a student of psychology at Harvard. And really, it was these psychological insights in many ways that led to the growth of, of Facebook, not the technology. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Scott Hartley, the author of The Fuzzy and the Tank. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A new book. Scott, let's talk solutions. What can government do about this? So I participated in something called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, where the idea was to bring people from product, from technology, from engineering, from venture capital into Washington to sort of mix it up, stir the pot, to sit down with the different uh, chief technology officers at different agencies and be able to bring outside perspective. On the flip side, the Defense Department, for example, has taken uh, problems that they deeply understand uh, whether it's across different military groups from the State Department, from the U.S. Uh, US aid, uh, or different, different backgrounds, where they've taken these problems and they've now brought them out to Silicon Valley. So there's a course that's actually at Stanford University that's now been sort of productized and has been pushed out to about 13 universities. And what they did was they took these problems from the Defense Department, from these different military groups, from the State Department, from USAID, and they created two courses, one called Hack for defense and one called hacking for diplomacy. And these were courses that really mixed up people that were studying fuzzy subjects like political science and people that were studying quote unquote, you know, techie subjects like electrical engineering or computer science. And they brought them together under one roof into one project team to work on these ideas together where we get people, you know, not just looking at creating solutions and then searching for the problem after the fact, but really sort of rooting uh, in a problem that's that's intrinsic to society, that's something that we really need to focus on, and then getting some of our smartest tech minds to partner with fuzzies, to partner with people that really understand that problem, to be able to build a real solution. You also say that this partnership between fuzzies and techies could have a really positive impact on how we conduct education. 
So in education, it's really interesting because I think, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, we had this notion that if we put curriculum online, suddenly people would come, people would learn on their own. And I think that, you know, when you take a step back and you look at the graduation rates of online only programs, some examples that were you know covered in the New York Times are half that of the national average. So f- on the order of 40% graduation rates where the national average is around 81% graduation rates. So obviously, I think putting things online and expecting magic to happen is not sufficient. Um, I think engaging with technology is necessary. And so thinking about how do we engage with technology meaningfully, but retain sort of these fundamental um, aspects of education where it's collaborative, it's, uh, it's fo- you know fostering communication, it's fostering um, the sort of empathetic uh, intermixing of, of, of people to see another's opinion and be able to tug on the mind in different ways. And I think there are really interesting examples of that in the form of um, asking messy questions. So getting kids to engage with technology, use Google, use YouTube, use all these new technology tools, but do it in a way where you can't just Google the answer. So a messy question in this case would be asking something like, what would happen if our ears were square? Because it's not something that's Googleable. It requires a little bit of mastery of, of physiology, a little mastery of acoustics, a little mastery of physics. And, and you ask this messy question to a group of, of sixth graders or seventh graders, and you engage technology and you allow them to collaborate. You allow them to sort of peel back the onion on, on their different opinions, um, ask questions of sources. Which sources do they trust? What would you tell a parent today? about how to encourage their children's educational choices. So I sat down with the vice provost of undergraduate education uh, at Stanford last week, and he told me about one concept they have there, which is uh, this concept of ballistic students and students that are on a singular trajectory. They've, they've done everything right to, you know, from middle school to high school, to get into college, to get into the college of their choice, and now say they want to become a product manager at Amazon. They know exactly what they think they need to get there. And so they're on this ballistic path, and they don't want to deviate at all from that path. So ballistic like a missile. Like a missile. Straight up in the air. Straight, you know, from point A to point B. And when you take a step back and you think about education as a plane ticket, what happens when you fly from New York City to Frankfurt, Germany? When you get off the airplane, you throw the plane ticket in the trash. You didn't see anything on the way. You know, you, you slept on the plane. And if you flip this around and you think about the metaphor of a passport, rather than a plane ticket. And you try to collect stamps from various different countries, various different experiences and backgrounds. I think that you know, if you can treat your education like a passport, or if you've spent a lot of time in Europe, you want to get to Asia. If you've been in Asia a lot, you want to get to South America. And so I think if you, you, know, if you love English literature, that's fantastic, and you should pursue that. But you should really pull yourself in a direction that gets you a stamp from a completely different world. So take that class in statistics, or take that class in computer science. And on the flip side, you know, for somebody that's, you know, that loves JavaScript, and loves learning coding, you know, take that class in Russian literature or that class in philosophy because that's going to open, open the mind and tug it in different ways. And I think that getting back to the core of what a liberal arts education is, it's really about this sort of non-vocational training where, you know, we're exposed to a breadth of ideas, we're exposed to a breadth of different disciplines and topics, and we're pulled in various ways and we're able to discover our own passions and then apply technology meaningfully to those passions. I'm a huge fan of the liberal arts. I'm not so sure that somebody who's maybe struggling just to get to college can they, – they can necessarily choose as easily as somebody like myself. Don't you think they might need to be a little more pragmatic? 
So I think this is a question about class and inequality and, and access to opportunity. And these are really big and important questions. But I think the failure of, of saying that one is good and the other is bad, you know, studying STEM and you've got a, a pathway to relevancy is false. You know, going back to the number of jobs that are yet to be created. You know, if you look at a graduate today in 2017, working in the year 2060 or 2070, what are the skills that are going to be required to, to be relevant over this coming set of decades? And it might not be JavaScript. You know, and, and that, that's a moving target. And so all of us, regardless of what the degree title says, need to take a step back and realize that our educations are always in beta. We're always a work in progress. We've got to continually reinvest in ourselves and think about our skills and our relevancy um, as you know, the most recent skills that we've acquired, not sort of what our degree was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great answer to Jim's question about what do you say to kids who go to community college? And, and that is that it's not merely a means to an end. It's the start of a process. Scott Hartley, author of the book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, thanks a lot for provoking us. Thank you. Jim, as an undergraduate, I went to school in Britain, not the U.S., and in the European systems, specialization comes a lot earlier. In fact, it comes in high school, and I think one of the great attributes of the American system is that students who go to college as science undergrads are encouraged in many schools to take at least one or two liberal arts courses. Are required. And, and, and I think that that kind of thinking is very important to, to emphasize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm a big advocate for this fuzzy thinking. I was a philosophy major, and, and I do think these soft skills are really vital. So there's two main themes that Scott is pursuing here. One is we need to think differently about technical education and liberal arts education, see, they shouldn't be as far apart as we think they are. We should find ways to merge them. So part of it's about how we think about education, how we think about skills. But then the other part is how do we apply a better marriage, a better symbiosis between the fuzzy skills and the hard technical oh, skills. I think he's doing more than that. He's also saying to business, look, for goodness sake, you've, you've spent too much time emphasizing the importance of, of big data and not enough time realizing that people with liberal arts skills or imaginative skills are very important to the mix as well. Right. So what do we do about it? What do we change? Well, I think we, we, we change business culture. I think that universities, different departments need to talk more to each other. And I also think that, that when we look at the future, it's not an either or right, right. choice. For instance, his wonderful observation about artificial intelligence not necessarily replacing jobs and talking about intelligence augmentation as well as just artificial intelligence that that there are many human skills and human capacities that come to the to play and that new technological innovations can create new kinds of of job categories that we haven't even imagined today and also require skills that are broader than merely the technical. Right. Now, there's a phrase that comes up, STEAM, 
as opposed to STEM. What is that? So you just add arts in, you know, it's okay. um, so, science, technology, engineering, math. arts and math. I'm a big fan of that. I, you know, I think the whole STEM discussion is important, but I also think that not everyone needs to know calculus and not everyone needs to know how to code. Um, and that we need diversity of skills. We need people understanding that they can work with other people uh, to come up with something better than either the coder or the English major alone could do. And as we've mentioned in so many other shows about politics, about business, about education, diversity, diversity, diversity right. of experience and of skills. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Miranda Schaefer is our producer, and this show is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S, content.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.